Chapter Ten, Part One of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Candace Tuttle. Gilbert Keith Chesterton by Maisie Ward. Chapter Ten, Part One. Who is G.K.C.? The Boer War, and the whole country enthusiastically behind it. The Liberal Party, as a whole, went with the Conservatives. The leading Fabians, Bernard Shaw, Mr. and Mrs. Sidney Webb, Hubert Bland, Cecil Chesterton, and the semi-detached Fabian H. G. Wells, were likewise for the war. Only a tiny minority remained in opposition, most of whom were pacifists or cranks of one kind or another. To the sane minority of this minority, Gilbert found himself belonging. It is something of a tribute to the national feeling at such a moment of tension that, as an American has noted, Chesterton was the one British writer, utterly unknown before, who built up a great reputation, and it was gained not through nationalistic support, but through determined and persistent opposition to British policy. In his daily news column, a correspondent later asked him to define his position. Chesterton replied, The unreasonable patriot is one who sees the faults of his fatherland with an eye which is clearer and more merciless than any eye of hatred, the eye of an irrational and irrevocable love. His attitude sprang, he claimed, not from defect, but from excess of patriotism. It is hard to imagine anything that would clarify better the ideas of a strong mind than finding itself in opposition. This opposition began at home, in argument with Cecil. Later the two brothers would agree about most main issues, but now Cecil was a Tory Democrat, Gilbert a pro-Boer, and what was known as a Little Englander. The tie between the two brothers was very close. As the innocent child, developed into the combative companion, there is no doubt that he proportionately affected Gilbert. All their friends talk of the endless, amicable arguments through which both grew. Conrad Knoll remembers parties at Warwick Gardens during the Boer War, at which the two brothers would walk up and down like the two pistons of an engine, to the disorganization of the company and the dismay of their parents. It was at this time that Francis, engaged to a deeply devoted Gilbert, found even that devotion insufficient to pry him and Cecil apart, when an argument had got well under way. "'I must go home, Gilbert. I shall miss my train.' Usually he would have sprung to accompany her, but now she must miss many trains before the brothers could be separated. Francis told me that when they were at the seaside, the landlady would sometimes clear away breakfast, leaving the brothers arguing, come to set lunch, and later set dinner, while still they argued. They had come to the seaside, but never saw the sea. Once Frances was staying with them at a house they had taken by the sea. Her room was next to Cecil's, and she could not sleep for the noise of the discussion that went on hour after hour. About one in the morning she rapped on the wall and said, "'Oh, Cecil, do send Gilbert to bed.' A brief silence followed, and then the remark, in a rather abashed voice, 
there's no one here cecil had been arguing with himself gilbert too argued with himself for the stand he was taking was a hard one mr belloc has told me that he felt gilbert suffered at any word against england that his patriotism was passionate and now he had himself to say that he believed his country to be in the wrong to admit it to himself to state it to others this autumn of eighteen ninety nine g k began to write for the speaker the weekly of this title had long been in a languishing condition when it was taken over by a group of young liberals of very marked views hammond became editor and philip comans carr sub-editor sir john simon was among the group for a short while but he soon told one of them that he feared close association with the speaker might injure his career f y eccles was in charge of the review department he is able to date the start of what was known as the new speaker with great exactitude for when the first number was going to press the ultimatum had been sent to kruger and the editors hesitated as to whether they should take the risk of announcing that it was war in south africa they decided against it but before their second number appeared war had been declared my difficulty in getting a picture of the first meeting of belloc and chesterton illustrates the problem of human testimony and the limits of that problem for i imagine a scripture critic old style would end by concluding that the men never met at all f y eccles e c bentley and lucian oldershaw all claim to have made the momentous introduction mr eccles adding that it took place at the office of the speaker while gilbert himself has described the meeting twice once in the street once in a restaurant belloc remembers the introduction as made in the year nineteen hundred by lucian oldershaw who was living at the time with hammond mr oldershaw usually has the accuracy of the hero worshipper and upon this matter he adds several amusing details for some time he had been trying to get the group on the speaker to read chesterton and had in vain taken several articles to the office mr eccles declared the handwriting was that of a jew and he prejudiced belloc says oldershaw against reading anything written by my jew friend but when at last they did meet belloc opened the conversation by saying in his most pontifical manner chesterton you write very well chesterton was then twenty-six belloc four years older it was at mont blanc a restaurant in gerard street soho and the meeting was celebrated with a bottle of moulin avant the first description given by gilbert himself is at once earlier and more vivid than the better known one in the autobiography when i first met belloc he remarked to the friend who introduced us that he was in low spirits his low spirits were and are much more uproarious and enlivening than anybody else's high spirits he talked into the night and left behind in it a glowing track of good things when i have said that i mean things that are good and certainly not merely beaumont i have said all that can be said in the most serious aspect about the man who has made the greatest fight for good things of all the men of my time we met between a little soho paper shop and a little soho restaurant his arms and pockets were stuffed with french nationalist and french atheist newspapers he wore a straw hat shading his eyes which are like a sailor's and emphasizing his napoleonic chin 
The little restaurant to which we went had already become a haunt for three or four of us who held strong but unfashionable views about the South African War, which was then in its earliest prestige. Most of us were riding on the speaker. What he brought into our dream was this Roman appetite for reality and for reason in action, and when he came into the door there entered with him the smell of danger. It was from that dingy little Soho café, Chesterton writes in the autobiography, that there emerged the quadruped, the twy-formed monster Mr. Shaw has nicknamed the Chester Belloc. Listening to Belloc is intoxicating. I have heard many brilliant talkers, but none to whom that word can so justly be applied. He goes to your head. He takes you off your feet. He leaves you breathless. He can convince you of anything. My mother and brother both counted it as one of the great experiences of their lives to have dined with Belloc in a small Paris restaurant, en Vaudant de Bourgogne, and then to have walked with him the streets of that glorious city while he discoursed of its past. Imagination staggers before the picture of a Belloc in his full youth and vigor, in a group fitted to strike from him his brightest fire at a moment big with issues for the world's future. In Chesterton's autobiography, a chapter is devoted to the portrait of a friend, while Belloc in turn has something of Chesterton in obituary notices, and also in a brief study of his position in English literature. None of these documents give much notion of the intellectual flames struck out by one mind against the other. It has often been asked how much Belloc influenced Chesterton. The best test of an influence in a writer's life is to compare what he wrote before with what he wrote after he was first subjected to it. It is easy to apply this test to Belloc's influence on G.K.C. because of the mass we still have of his boyhood writings. In pure literature, in philosophy and theology, he remains untouched by the faintest change. Pages from the notebook could be woven into orthodoxy, essays from the debater introduced into the Victorian age in literature, and it would look simply like buds and flowers on the same bush. Belloc has characterized himself as ignorant of English literature, and says he learnt from Chesterton most of what he knows of it, while there is no doubt Chesterton was by far the greater philosopher. With politics, sociology, and history, and the relation of religion to all three, it is different. Belloc himself told me he thought the chief thing he had done for Chesterton when they first met was to open his eyes to reality. Chesterton had been unusually young for his twenty-six years, and unusually simple in regard to the political scene. He was, in fact, the young man he himself was later to describe as knowing all about politics and nothing about politicians. The four years between the two men seemed greater than it was, partly because of Belloc's more varied experience of life, French military training, life at Oxford, wide travel, and an early marriage. Belloc then could teach Chesterton a certain realism about politics, which meant a certain cynicism about politicians. Far more valuable, however, was what Belloc had to give him in sociology. We have seen that G.K. was already dissatisfied with socialism before he met Belloc. It may be that by his consideration of the nature of man, he would later have reached the positions so individually set out in What's Wrong with the World, 
but this can only remain a theoretical question. For Bellick did actually, at this date, answer the sociological question that Chesterton, at this date, was putting. Answered it brilliantly, and answered it truly. Every test that G.K. could later apply, of profound human reality, of truth divinely revealed, convinced him that the answer was true. He had, he has told us, been a socialist, because it was so horrible not to be one. But he now learned of the historical Christian alternative, equally opposed to socialism and to capitalism, well-distributed property. This had worked in the past, was still working in many European countries, could be made to work again in England. The present trend appeared to Belloc to be toward the servile state, and in the book with this title, and a second book, The Restoration of Property, he later developed his sociology. After this meeting, two powerful and very different minds would reciprocally influence one another. An admirer of both told me that he thought Chesterton got the idea of small property from Belloc, but gave Belloc a fuller realization of the position of the family. One difference between them is that Belloc writes sociology as a textbook, while Chesterton writes it as a human document. All the wealth of imagination that Belloc pours into the path to Rome, or the four men, he sternly excludes from the servile state. The poet, traveler, essayist is one man, the sociologist another. The third field of influence was history. Here Belloc did Chesterton two great services. He restored the proportion of English history, and he put England back into its context. Since the Reformation, English history had been written with all the stress of the Protestant period. Lingard had written earlier, but had not been popularized, and certainly would not be used at St. Paul's School. And even Lingard had laid little stress on the social effects of the Reformation. Mr. Hammond's contemporary work on English social history fitted into Belloc's more vivid, if less documented, vision. None of this could be disregarded by later writers. Belloc, too, restored that earlier England to the Christendom to which it belonged. The England of Macaulay, or of Green, had, like Mr. Mantellini's dowager, either no outline or a demmed outline, for it was cut out of a larger map, and Chesterton was always seeking an outline of history. To get England back into the context of Christendom is a great thing. Just how great must depend upon how rightly Christendom is conceived— one cannot always escape the feeling that Belloc conceives it too narrowly. His famous phrase, The faith is Europe, and Europe is the faith, omits too much. The East, out of which Christianity came, the new worlds into which Europe has flowed. Belloc, of course, knows these things, and has often said them. It is rather a question of emphasis, of how things loom in the mind when judgments have to be made. In that sense, he does tend to narrow the faith to Europe. In exactly the same sense, he does tend to narrow Europe to France. Born in France of a French father, educated in England, Belloc chose his mother's nationality, chose to be English. But his creator had chosen differently, and there is not much a man can do in competition with his creator. I do not for a moment suggest that Belloc, having chosen to be English, 
is conscious of anything but loyalty to the country of his adoption. The thing lies far below the mind's conscious movements. Bellock thinks of himself as an Englishman, with a patriotic duty to criticize his country. But his feelings are not really those of an Englishman. Once, at least, he recognized this, when he wrote the verse, England to me that never have malingered, nor spoken falsely, nor your flattery used, nor even in my rightful garden lingered, what have you not refused? And just as France was Bellock's rightful garden, so England was Chesterton's. When first they talked of the church, he told Bellock that he wanted the example of someone entirely English, who should nonetheless have come in. When criticizing his country, his voice has the note of pain that only love can give. Bellock saw him as intensely national, English of the English, a mirror of England. He writes with an English accent. It is of some interest that after meeting Bellock, Gilbert added notes to two early poems, each note reflecting a judgment of Bellock's. On the Dreyfus case, which Bellock saw as all French Catholics saw it, on Anglo-American relations, which Bellock saw as most Latin Europeans would see it. The first was the poem entitled To a Certain Nation, addressed to France in commentary on the Dreyfus case of 1899, which must be briefly explained for those who are too young to remember the excitement it caused. Captain Dreyfus, a Jewish officer in the French army, had been found guilty of treachery and sent to Devil's Island. All France was divided into two camps on the question of his guilt or innocence. In general, Catholics, and what we should call the right, were for his guilt. Atheists, anti-clericals, and believers in the Republic were for his innocence. Passions were roused to fury on both sides. English opinion was almost entirely for his innocence. I was a small girl at the time, and I remember that my brother and I amused ourselves by crying, Viva Dreyfus! on all possible and impossible occasions, for the annoyance of our pious French governess. I remember also that our parents were startled by the vehemence of the French Catholic paper La Croix, from which our governess imbibed her views. Ultimately the case was reopened, and Dreyfus, after years of horror on Devil's Island, found not guilty, and restored to his rank in the army. But there are, I know, Catholic Frenchmen alive today who refuse to believe in his innocence, and hold that the whole thing was a Jewish Masonic plot that hampered the French espionage service and nearly lost us the War of 1914. In the first edition of The Wild Night, written before the meeting with Belloc, Gilbert, like any other English liberal, had assumed Dreyfus's innocence, and in the poem To a Certain Nation had reproached the France of the Revolution, the France he had loved, as unworthy of herself. And we who knew thee once, we have a right to weep. The note in the second edition shows him as now undecided about Dreyfus's guilt, and concludes, There may have been a fog of injustice in the French courts, I know that there was a fog of injustice in the English newspapers. In an alliance, Chesterton had gloried in the blood of Hengist, and hymned an Anglo-American alliance with the enthusiasm of a young Republican 
who took for granted the links of language and of origin that might draw together two great countries into something significant. In Change, Eclipse, and Peril, Under the Whole World's Scorn, By Blood and Death and Darkness, The Saxon Peace is Sworn, That all our fruit be gathered, And all our race take hands, And the sea be a Saxon river That runs through Saxon lands. But in the note to the second edition, he says, In the matter of the Anglo-American alliance, I have come to see that our hopes of brotherhood with America are the same in kind as our hopes of brotherhood with any other of the great independent nations of Christendom. And a very small study of history was sufficient to show me that the American nation, which is a hundred years old, is at least fifty years older than the Anglo-Saxon race. The poem was, of course, only a boyish expression of a boyish dream, like all dreams, like all boyhood dreams especially. It omitted too much. Yet it contained a thought that might well have borne rich fruit in Gilbert's Catholic life. My mother told me once that when after three years' study of Queen Elizabeth's character she came to a different conclusion from Belloc, she found it almost impossible to resist his power and hold on to her own view. It must be realized that Chesterton actually preferred the attitude of a disciple. A mutual friend has told me that Chesterton listened to Belloc all the time and said very little himself. In matters historical, where he felt his own ignorance, Gilbert's tendency was simply to make an act of faith in Belloc. On nothing were the two men more healthily in accord than on the Boer War. In an interesting study of Belloc, prefixed to a French translation of contemporary England, F. Y. Eccles explains how he and most of the speaker group differed from the pacifist pro-Boers, who hated the South African War because they hated all wars. The young liberals on the speaker were not pacifists. They hated the war because they thought it would harm England, harm her morally, to be fighting for an unjust cause, and even materially to be shedding the blood of her sons and pouring out her wealth at the bidding of a handful of alien financiers. Thus far, Gilbert was among one group with whom he was in fullest sympathy. But I think he went further. Mr. Eccles told me that most of the speaker group had no sympathy with the Boers. Gilbert had. He thought of them as human beings, who might well have been farmers of Sussex or of Kent, something of an older civilization, resisting money power and imperialism, and perishing thereby. Few indeed of the Liberal Party held Chesterton's ideal, an England, territorially small, spiritually great. The speaker was struggling against odds. It was the voice of a tiny group. To Gilbert it seemed that this mattered nothing, so long as that little group held to their great ideas so long as the paper represented not merely a group or a party, but the liberal idea. In an unfinished letter to Hammond is to be found this idea, as he saw it, and his dawning disappointment, even with the paper that most nearly stood for it. I am just about to commit a serious impertinence. I believe, however, that you will excuse it, because it is about the paper, and I know that there is not another paper, dead or alive, for which I would take the trouble, or run the risk of offence. I am hearing on all sides the speaker complained of, by the very people who should be, and would be, if they could, 
its enthusiastic supporters, and I cannot altogether deny the truth of their objections, though I am glad to notice both in them and in myself the fact that those objections are tacitly based on the assumption of the speaker having an aim and standard higher than other papers. If the speaker were a mere party rag like Judy or the Times, it would be only remarkable for moderation. But to us who have built hopes on it, as the pioneer of a younger and larger political spirit, it is difficult to be silent when we find it, as it seems to us, poisoned with that spirit of ferocious triviality, which is the spirit of Birmingham eloquence, and with that evil instinct which has disintegrated the Irish party, the instinct for hating the man who differs from you slightly more than the man who differs from you altogether. Of two successive numbers during the stress of the fight, a fight in which we had first to unite our army and then to use it, a considerable portion was devoted, first to sneering at the Daily News, and then to sneering at the Westminster Gazette. There is a sentence in the Book of Proverbs which expresses the whole of my politics. For the liberal man deviseth liberal things, and by his liberality he shall stand. Now what I object to is sneering at the Westminster as a supporter of Chamberlain when everyone knows that it hardly lets a day pass without an ugly caricature of him. What I object to in this is that it is talking brumudgeum. It is not devising liberal things, but spiteful, superficial, illiberal things. It is claptrap and temporary deception of the patriotism before politics, order. To all this you will say there is an obvious answer. The speaker is a party paper, and does not profess to be otherwise. But here I am sure we are mistaking our mission. What the speaker is, I hope and believe, destined to do, is to renovate liberalism. And though liberalism, like every other party, is often conducted by claptrap, it has never been renovated by claptrap, but by great command of temper, and the persistent exposition of persuasive and unanswerable truths. It is while we are in the desert that we have the vision. We being a minority must be all philosophers. We must think for both parties in the state. It is no good our devoting ourselves to the flowers of mob oratory with no mob to address them to. We must, like the free traders, for instance, have discoveries, definite truths, and endless patience in explaining them. We must be more than a political party, or we shall cease to be one. Time and again in history, victory has come to a little party with big ideas. But can anyone conceive anything with the mark of death more on its brow than a little party with little ideas? Such liberalism was not perhaps of this world. It certainly was not of the liberal party. Gilbert argued much with himself during these years. He had come out of his time of trial with firm faith in God and in man. But his philosophy was still in the making, and he made it largely out of the material supplied by ordinary London suburban society, and by the rather less than usual society of cranks and enthusiasts, so plentiful at the end of the nineteenth century. He has written in the autobiography of the artistic and dilettante groups where everyone discussed religion and no one practiced it, of the Christian socialists and other societies into which he and Cecil found their way, 
and some of the friendships they formed. Among these, one of the closest was with Conrad Knoll, who wrote in answer to my request for his recollections. We met G.K.C. for the first time at the Stapleys in Bloomsbury Square, at a series of meetings of the Christotheosophic Society. He was like a very big fish out of water. He was comparatively thin, however, in those days, nearly forty years ago. We had been much intrigued by the weekly contribution of an unknown writer to the speaker and the nation, brilliant work, and my wife and I independently came to the conclusion when we heard this young man speak that it must be he. The style was unmistakable. I thought of writing him to congratulate him on his speech, but before I could do so I got a letter from him, saying that he was coming to hear me in the same series in a week or so. It was thus we first became acquainted, and the acquaintance ripened into a warm friendship with both of us. He and his brother Cecil were in and out of our flat in Paddington Green, where I was assistant curate. He was genial, bubbling over with jokes, at which he roared with laughter. The question was becoming insistent. When would there be enough money for Francis and Gilbert to get married? In one letter, Francis asks him what he thinks of Omar Khayyam. He replies at great length and concludes, "'You see the result of asking me for an opinion. I have written it very hurriedly. If I had paused, I might make an essay of it. Commercial pig! Never mind, sweetheart. That essay might be a saucepan some day, or at any rate, a cheap toast-rack.'" End of chapter 10, part 1. Recording by Candace Tuttle.